welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. A new patron has joined the party. Welcome to the fold and thank you so very much, Rekha Sharma Crawford. Some of you may remember that among the many other things, Rekha is shepherding a petition to get the BIA and or the Attorney General to vacate or amend matter of Lazada so maybe, just maybe, we can stop formally complaining against one another just to protect our clients. I encourage you all to sign her petition, link in the show notes. And to all the podcast's most generous supporters, Derek Upchurch, Nanad Milosevic, Brianna Carey, Yuna Scott, Justin Sweeney, and John Shaw, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. The podcast could not do it without you. Not the largest week of cases I've ever had, but that's never stopped us before. The cases, in just a minute. Before getting to the cases, I want to talk about journey business plans. Journey is the leading business immigration plan writing company in the United States. 10 years. And they know immigration. Heck, they started as an E2 company themselves. Journey prides itself on its responsiveness and overall customer service, preparing business plans for E2, EB2 NIW, L1, EB5, and much more. If you don't yet know about Journey and don't want to listen to just me, ask your colleagues. Or even better, try them out. Visit www.journey.com and use promo code REVJOURNEY30 for a 30% discount on your first business plan. That's R-E-V-J-O-O-R-N-E-Y 3-0. Or click on the link in the show notes. This podcast is also sponsored by Capital Good Fund. Millions of families seeking to improve their immigration status face financial barriers due to the high cost of legal services. Nonprofit Capital Good Fund is working to make these resources available to all, especially those who would otherwise not qualify for traditional loans. Certified CDFI Capital Good Fund is partnering with attorneys to provide the financial services families need. 
They offer affordable financing with no closing fee or down payments for those working with attorneys to move their case forward and get attorneys out of the accounts receivable business. To learn more about the program, email immigration at goodfund.us or call 866-584-3651 and tell them who sent you. First up is Hernandez v. Jadu, published by the Fifth Circuit on April 16th, 2023. This case is about temporary protected status, or TPS. And actually, it was published late last week, but I caught it. I always do. Mr. Hernandez and his co-plaintiffs are from El Salvador and Honduras, and they entered the United States without authorization a long time ago. So long, in fact, that they were present in the U.S. when those respective countries were designated with TPS, and so they've had TPS for many years. But before they received temporary protected status, they received final orders of removal that were never actually executed. They were never physically removed to their countries. A fairly common TPS story. At some point, they left the United States for temporary travel abroad with TPS-based advance parole. Upon their return, they were let back into the U.S. because of the advance parole. Under current USCIS policy, that makes them eligible to adjust to lawful permanent resident status because they have an admission or parole, so long, of course, that they have a visa immediately available to them. Apparently, all the plaintiffs here have that, likely based on marriages to U.S. citizens or U.S. citizen children over the age of 21. The problem is, is that all the plaintiffs here also have those outstanding final orders of removal. And because they're not arriving aliens, because again, they enter the United States unlawfully that first time and were not, for example, encountered at a port of entry requesting admission to come in, USCIS took the position that it didn't have jurisdiction over their adjustment of status applications because there existed unexecuted removal orders. To USCIS, the plaintiffs here were in effect still in removal proceedings because the removal orders were never executed. I guess. The logic has never quite made sense to me. Anyway, for that reason, the plaintiffs sued USCIS in federal court. USCIS wasn't even allowing them to apply to adjust status. The district court judge dismissed the claims. And here, the Fifth Circuit affirmed, based on the reason used by the district court, the plaintiffs' claims were similar to, and therefore foreclosed by, a holding last year issued by the Fifth Circuit in Duarte v. Mayorkas, episode 97 of the podcast. The only difference between this case and Duarte was, apparently, that the plaintiffs in Duarte had had their removal proceedings administratively closed. But it's the same legal principle being challenged. Non-citizens do not become arriving aliens upon their return to the United States on advance parole. If they did, USCIS would have jurisdiction over their adjustment of status applications, notwithstanding the final orders of removal. Another quirk I've never quite understood. But, as the Fifth Circuit explained, because the plaintiffs here and non-citizens like them don't transform into arriving aliens upon their return with advance parole, USCIS doesn't have jurisdiction where the removal orders, like here, were never executed. No explanation in this case about why the non-citizens remain in removal proceedings as a matter of law and why it's a reasonable interpretation of the statute or regulations for USCIS to believe that it lacks jurisdiction over adjustment of status applications just because removal orders are final and unexecuted. I mean, I get that USCIS would lack jurisdiction if removal proceedings were ongoing. Then, of course, an immigration judge has exclusive jurisdiction over the adjustment application. But why does the rationale apply if removal proceedings have concluded? 
Why can't a non-citizen like the plaintiffs here file a Form I-212 waiver with USCIS and, if granted, apply to adjust LPR status? Why are we talking jurisdiction between administrative agencies at all, especially where USCIS has authority to waive the inadmissibility attendant to removal orders? Beats me, and unaddressed, here. Concluding with a pretty substantial Patel footnote, the court affirmed the district court's dismissal of the challenges. Might I suggest? Looking at my notes on episode 100, I discussed the settlement in the case Central American Resource Center v. USCIS, which maybe, just maybe, might permit the non-citizens in this case to have their final orders of removal reopened and terminated by the immigration courts, which would then indeed provide USCIS jurisdiction over their adjustment of status applications. But of course, more research needed there. And that is Hernandez v. Jadot. Our final case this week, you'll never guess, is Hernandez v. Garland, published by the Second Circuit on April 21st, 2023. This case is about discretion. Mr. Hernandez is from Mexico and entered the United States unlawfully in 2001. He was placed in removal proceedings in 2016, where, pretty much without other options under immigration law, he applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240A-B. He must have alleged that his removal would cause extreme and exceptionally unusual hardship to his U.S. citizen spouse, parent, or children. But in addition to the generally difficult elements required of that relief, Mr. Hernandez had a problem. In 2009, he had pled guilty to, quote, third-degree assault after his former partner reported that he had beaten her numerous times with a belt about her body, causing welts, swelling, bruising, and scratches to the back of her legs, thighs, and wrist, end quote. The partner was hospitalized, and Mr. Hernandez was subject to a protection order. Then, in 2016, probably the incident that brought him to ICE's attention, he pled guilty to, quote, disorderly conduct after his wife accused him of domestic violence, end quote. The plea actually stemmed from two separate 2016 incidents where force was allegedly used against Mr. Hernandez's wife, and this time, Mr. Hernandez received another protection order barring him from seeing his wife and his young child for some time. Mr. Hernandez also has a DUI and some other arrests. So there's all the bad. But after some back and forth with the BIA, that very bad 2009 conviction was vacated by the criminal court. Then on remand from the BIA, the immigration judge looked at all the facts surrounding the 2016 incident and held that notwithstanding it, Mr. Hernandez merited relief. In addition to Mr. Hernandez's in-court explanation, the IJ relied on an affidavit submitted by Mr. Hernandez's wife, which read, quote, In October 2016, I told the police that Oscar harmed me because I was very jealous and angry about a picture I saw of him with some dancers. But Oscar has never hurt me or the children, and we desperately want him to be able to live with us again. He is never violent, and when I lose my temper, he always tries to walk away until I am more calm. End quote. Life is complicated. And I'm sure there was more discussed and found by the immigration judge, but that's the crux of what was relayed in this decision. So, having received non-LPR cancellation of removal and therefore lawful permanent resident status, DHS appealed and the BIA overturned the immigration judge, ordering Mr. Hernandez removed. 
For example, unlike the IJ who heard the testimony, the BIA, quote, did not find Mr. Hernandez's explanation of the 2016 incident convincing, end quote. Mr. Hernandez moved for reconsideration where, if I'm being honest, it seems that the BIA explained things in a way that might better survive appellate review. And that's exactly what happened before the Second Circuit. Important to this case, quote, the BIA reviews factual findings for clear error and questions of law, discretion, and judgment and all other issues de novo, end quote. And in determining, quote, whether established facts are sufficient to meet a legal standard, the BIA is entitled to weigh the evidence in a manner different from that accorded by the immigration judge, end quote. On the other hand, the BIA cannot engage in fact-finding on appeal, although, quote, may take administrative notice of facts that are not reasonably subject to dispute, end quote. Interesting. Rounding out BIA standards of review because they are just so riveting, the BIA reviews factual findings for clear error. That rotting dead fish standard from the First Circuit that I love so much. And to be honest, Patel almost surely prevents a circuit challenge to factual findings in the cancellation of removal context. Unless, like here, the challenge is cabined as an argument that the BIA applied the wrong standard of review. Hence my discussion just now of standards of review. But the Second Circuit panel, or at least two of three judges, didn't believe that that happened here. The court believed that the BIA reviewed everything properly. Mr. Hernandez first argued that the BIA engaged in improper fact-finding by believing his testimony not convincing, contrary to what the IJ found. But in the Second Circuit, the BIA simply relied on all the same facts as the IJ, but reached a different conclusion on Mr. Hernandez's persuasiveness and eligibility for discretionary relief. To the court, that was proper application of de novo review on a de novo issue. And indeed, quote, the BIA resolved any remaining doubt by explaining the basis for its decision when denying Mr. Hernandez's motion for reconsideration, end quote. True, in a quote that I love, quote, the BIA must not only state the correct standard, but apply it, end quote. That being said, to the Second Circuit, it was Mr. Hernandez who had mischaracterized what occurred and not the BIA. Plus, even if the BIA might have misread some of the testimony regarding what had happened in 2016, quote, Minor errors do not require remand, end quote. Getting into the nitty-gritty of the testimony discrepancy just a little bit, even if the BIA misunderstood the testimony and believed that Mr. Hernandez had hit his wife with a phone, that wasn't the sole reason that the BIA overturned the immigration judge. The BIA relied on the phone throwing generally, and the disorderly conduct guilty plea and the protection order, and not just what direction the phone was thrown. As to the BIA's discounting of the wife's affidavit, well, that affidavit conflicted with what she told police at the time, and quote, the BIA has discretion to evaluate the weight of the evidence, which includes the discretion to consider both its strengths and weaknesses, end quote. In-court testimony always preferred rather than affidavits, if you ask me. The court therefore ruled against Mr. Hernandez. Short week of cases this week, so here's a bit from Judge Pooler in dissent. Judge Pooler reads the record very differently. Judge Pooler believes that the BIA engaged in improper fact-finding and deviated quite far from the clear error review required of review of IJ factual findings. Quote, 
Without identifying any of the IJ's findings as clearly erroneous, the BIA implicitly rejected the IJ's factual findings and substituted the facts found by the IJ with its own factual findings. End quote. Can't do that. Nor, to Judge Pooler, is the BIA, quote, permitted to substitute its own view of the facts by filling in gaps, thereby rejecting the IJ's factual findings without overtly doing so, end quote. It is, after all, IJs and not the BIA that are generally in the best position to make credibility determinations and weigh testimony, as they are the ones in the courtroom, explained Judge Pooler. Really? If you're looking for case law to show when and how the BIA improperly errs in its factual findings and factual analysis, check out the cases relied upon Judge Pooler in this dissent. And that is Hernandez v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.